So with all that, you can turn to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. And our title tonight is God's Way, and I'll get to that explanation pretty fast. So Genesis chapter 28, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first part, like the half of one. It says, so Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Well, if you were here last week, you remember, remember Isaac is known as the deceiver, the heel catcher. He got a blessing, but it was sort of like an illegal blessing in a way. Even though he was supposed to be blessed, they were all trying to go against God's will. But it was done with deception, so really, if you think about it, it was done sort of improperly. Tonight, he'll get the real blessing that he should have just waited on the whole time. It's going to be the right way, which is God's way, which is where the title comes from. We won't see that till verse 3, though. Because before Isaac blesses Jacob, he's going to give him some instructions. So let me read the, the other half of verse 1, then we're going to read a couple of verses with it. So then he commanded him, do not, do not, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Don't marry these pagans. And we learned also last week Esau had already done that, not just once, but twice. Then he gives him some instructions about where to go. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So if you remember back to chapter 24, this is the same area that Eliezer, the servant, went to to get Rebekah. So now Jacob has to go get his own wife. He doesn't get a servant to go find one for him. He has to go. But his dad is telling him where to go, what to do. But he starts off with, whatever you do, don't marry one of those Canaanite women. And then, if you remember last week, it kind of ended with Jacob's mom saying, if my son marries these Canaanite women, I just want to die. Well, we'll learn tonight, at least we'll get started on the, on the path. He's not going to do that. He is going to obey. So let's keep reading, verse 3. This is the blessing I was talking about, the real one. But it's from his dad. He'll get even a better one coming up later tonight. Verse 3 says, may God Almighty, and in Hebrew, by the way, that's El Shaddai. That, this is God Almighty, which is what El Shaddai means. Bless you and make you fruitful. Increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land, which is the promised land, where you now reside as a foreigner, and the same land God gave to Abraham. So Isaac is passing on the blessing Abraham got, the same one he got. He's now given it down to the third generation, his son. But verse 1 was just kind of like a general blessing when it says Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Now it's getting more specific. He's itemizing the same blessing that the two of them got from God. And really, later on tonight, he'll get it straight from God. But also, if you were here last week, if you remember, because all these chapters kind of tie together, remember, we learned that Esau despised his birthright, which we also talked about. That really means he despised the blessing. This is the portion he despised. All he wanted was the financial portion. He could have cared less about having a promised land and a people group and nations will be blessed through you. He just wanted all the animals and real estate that he thought it included. Jacob is going to value it. Let's keep reading verse 5. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way. He went to Padan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Well, none of them know it yet, but we kind of talked about this last week too. 
20 more years are going to pass before Isaac will see his son again. And as far as we know in Scripture, his mom, Rebecca, likely never saw him. That's what that whole deception thing cost them. They never really were a family unit again because of that trickery. Verse 6, now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. And we could almost add in parentheses, like your brother did. Like your brother did twice. <laughs> Don't be your brother is what he's kind of saying. But verse 7 says, and he also learned that Jacob obeyed his father and mother, and he had left and gone to Paddan Aram. Well, obedience wasn't very important to Esau. We talked about Esau's heart a lot last week, too. But now he thinks he's almost found a fix. He's found a way to fix his disobedience. He's thinking in his mind, if I can obey like my brother's doing, maybe it'll, it'll help my standing with my parents. Which brings up, if you're taking notes tonight, this is the first thing you might want to write down. And I think a lot of us have experience in this same area, by the way, me included. It's easier to fix our mistakes on the front end, in other words, before we make one, than the back end. Anybody agree with that? In other words, it's much better to be proactive than reactive. But are we? Eh, not so much sometimes. We all make mistakes. But it's much easier to fix them before we do them. And the way Esau got in that mess, he just operated on his own power, his feelings, his ideas. He never asked God, God, what should I do? What would you have me do? That's one way, by the way, we can all stay on the front end of these mistakes. Filter it through God's word. He will guide us. He will instruct us. The Holy Spirit will nudge us and elbow us and say, don't do that. Esau just wasn't asking the right questions. So let's keep reading verse 8. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth, daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham. Almost messed up the easiest name. In addition to the wives he already had. So he's got a plan to fix this. He says, uh-oh, I guess mom and dad really are upset about these two Hittites, I'm going to fix it by marrying Ishmael's daughter. Because in his mind, he can fix his mistake because he knows, at least he thinks, Ishmael is Abraham's son too. So if I were to marry his daughter, I'll be kind of doing what he just told Jacob to do. Go back and get a wife from your own people. But... He's really misguided. Um, he's working on his feelings. He's once again operating on his feelings, not God's will, God's information. He's trying to do the right thing, but he's doing it totally the wrong way. Because he thinks if he marries Ishmael's daughter, his parents will like it. What he doesn't know, and we know because we've already read the story a few weeks ago, Ishmael is not really in the lineage of, of the chosen people. He's kind of an outsider based on his mom, Hagar. He's really not in the, the, the good favor side of the family. So what he thinks is going to fix it is not going to help at all. He thinks it'll help his standing with his parents, and that's why he's going to do it. But what he doesn't realize at all, not only will his parents not really restore his good standing, God doesn't care at all that he's marrying Ishmael's daughter. 
Because God never told him to do that. He's trying to fix things without asking the Lord is how he got there. Which brings up our second point tonight. God's word, our Bible, has to guide all of our decisions. And if it's not spelled out in God's word specifically, because you know, we've kind of joked about it from the pulpit before, you may not find a verse that says, go to West Melbourne and get a wife. It's probably not going to be there. But you will find a principle that says something more like, don't be yoked to an unbeliever. God's principles are equally important as a specific verse that spells out exactly what to do. Esau was operating outside of God's will, which really is outside of God's principles. He was yoked to two Hittite unbelievers. Um, now, those verses came later, of course, but the principle was always there, and that's why Jacob is getting these instructions. Let's keep reading back to our text. Verse 10. So Jacob left Beersheba, and he set out for Haran. We saw that on a map once again about a month ago. When he reached a certain place, it's not a specific place, it's a certain place, kind of like vague in a way, and we'll get to that in a second. He stopped for the night because the sun had set, and he's probably tired. Taking one of the stones there, this is the part I don't quite get, by the way, he put it under his head and lay down to go to sleep. What in the world is he thinking using a rock for a pillow? I mean, I could maybe understand if it was a plant, even some dirt, make a pile of something, but a rock? Really? Sounded good to him, so he's going to go with it. Um, but this certain place, a better way to see it maybe, because depending on what translation you're reading, I'm, I'm reading NIV, which says certain place. It's really just a random place. There's nothing special about it. He's just going to stop. The sun is going down. He's getting dark. He can't keep going. But based on what happens coming up real soon, Jacob is going to decide it's a special place. It's not a certain place. It's a special place. And not just a special place, a very special place. But I might kind of have a different idea of my own about that. I'll let you make your own minds up when we get there. But let's think more about Jacob. <clears throat> Excuse me. What, what's Jacob thinking right now? Well, think about what happened last week. Tie these two chapters together. What happened? He probably believes, and I would say he's probably correct, by the way, my father is really disappointed on what I did. I tricked him. I put animal skins on. I lied. I told him I was Esau. And not just that, my brother is so mad about it, he's told me he's going to kill me. So he's probably a little full of regret. He's afraid of his brother. He's also, remember last week we talked about he's a mama's boy. He spent most of his time in the kitchen cooking. Now he's in the wilderness with a rock as a pillow. That is a mama's boy's worst nightmare, isn't it? And also... Don't forget, he just heard the blessing. Now he has the weight on his shoulders of completing the family blessing that came from his grandpa, his dad. Now it's fallen to him to really own the promised land. And then maybe the most important one of all to me would be, he doesn't really know God yet. If you read those verses, it's always, he, when he talks to Isaac, he says, your God, your God. It's never our God, my God, it's your God. So it's not his God yet. God is like a distant idea to him at best. So most likely, in other words, he's lonely, afraid, scared, 
filled with regret about how he behaved. And he's all by himself. So he's known, remember last week we learned, is the deceiver. There's nobody to deceive if you're all by yourself with a rock pillow. There's just not. <laughs> so he's really helpless, which as I was studying, a verse out of Romans kind of popped in my mind, and I'll put it on the screen for us. This is how he's feeling. But look, look what Jesus does. When we were helpless, when we were desperate, when we didn't know God yet ourselves, Christ came when? At just the right time. While we were helpless. And then he died for us. That's kind of what's happening with Jacob right here. It's not Jesus the Son, it's God the Father. But God is going to show up at exactly the right moment when he's lonely, afraid, scared, and helpless. It's really right when he needs help the most, God is going to intervene and step in just like he will for us. Never forget that. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, because this is kind of a little famous section. I'll get to that in a second. Verse 12 says, he had a dream in which he saw, now I'm reading NIV again, it says stairway. A lot of translations say ladder, and I believe it kind of should be ladder, by the way. And the reason, as I studied and looked into it, why would they substitute stairway? It's hard to envision if I keep reading. Let me read some more, and we'll, we'll back up in a second. A stairway, a ladder resting on the earth, which its top reaching to heaven. So he's dreaming. He saw the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. That's why some translations put stairway, because they can't imagine ascending and descending on a ladder at the same time. Well, this is God. This is heaven. In God's ladder, you can go up and down at the same time if you want to. You might can go sideways. Who knows? It's a God ladder. So I, I vote for the word ladder, by the way, if you hadn't figured that out yet. Anyway, back to our text. There above it, above this ladder, stood the Lord, and he said, I am. That sound familiar? I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. So at his time of greatest need, God shows up. It's in a dream, but it's really more like a vision. Think of it more like a prophetic vision. I'll explain why in a second. But here's the other thing that we should notice. He didn't really ask for God, did he? He just went to sleep on a rock. No wonder he's having dreams, crazy stuff. It's a rock pillow dream, I think. But God put this in his mind. I'm joking. I think God puts this in his mind for a reason. He's trying to show him something. But don't miss the fact it's unannounced, it's unasked for, it's uninvited. But God just shows up anyway. He can do the same thing for us. In our time of greatest need, even when we forget to ask, God will show up in your life and mine. But this is kind of a famous moment. Um, it's known in, in Bible kind of stories. You might have learned it this way even as a child. Jacob's Ladder. Remember, you ever heard that story? Jacob's Ladder. This is the Jacob's Ladder story. But it's not just famous because it's in Genesis. Jesus himself references it. And we'll get to that in a second, too which is why I made the case it's more, it's a prophetic vision. It's not just Jacob's rock pillow dream, it's a vision from the Lord. But let's look at some things to notice as we think about this. It's a ladder and angels are ascending and descending. Four things to look at. There's a connection between the earth, us, and heaven, God. Who's the connection? You ever seen that, um, you know, the whole... 
illustration of a real giant chasm and there's holy God and sinful man. Who's in between it? Jesus. Who's the latter? Jesus. That's why it's a vision. But look what else we notice. God saw, without being asked, that Jacob is lonely, afraid, and exhausted. God sees that. God sees you and me when we're the same way. Think of another thing, though. How many mistakes have we seen Jacob make already? We saw him make a whole ton of them just last week when he lied, deceived, and did all this other stuff for no reason because the promise was his anyway. God never turned his back on Jacob for that. And we learned a few weeks ago that God saw Abraham as always in obedience, even though we might kind of wonder how God would see that because we saw his mistakes. God knows we're imperfect people. He doesn't hold those mistakes against us if we'll put our hope and faith and trust in him. That's the real key. But then look at the final thing. God is, not was. He didn't say, I was, I used to be the God of your dead relatives. He says, I am. God is our God, too. Not just theirs. He is. They're always the same. It's in other words, and if you think about the story, the, the transfiguration of Jesus. Remember, there were some Old Testament characters that showed up, and he says, I am their God. Not I was, I am. Same idea we see right here. But more on this latter, because just that little piece by itself might not make it sort of what I would say is a famous or a well-known Bible story. Jesus references this exact story in his ministry now, if you want to, you can turn to it. I'm going to read a big chunk out of John. If you want to turn, but or you can just listen. John chapter 1, verse 45 through 49. They're going to put the last two on the screen to look at together. So John chapter 1, go to 45 if you want to track along, but I'll read them out loud for us. This is the story. In your Bible, I even have a header. It says something like, Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel, because we're going to talk about Nathaniel. Here's what it says in 45. So John 1, 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one, the Messiah, Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote. Then he adds who it is. It's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Look at what Nathanael says. And we know this kind of, his famous reply. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked. Philip says, Come and see. Why don't you come with me and see, and you'll see what I saw is what he's really saying. But then as they approached Jesus, verse 47 says, When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael is like, how does he know that? He must kind of know he doesn't have any, because he doesn't say, yeah, I do. He says, how do you know me, is what Nathanael asked in verse 48. Jesus answered, I saw you when you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. So he obviously just was doing that very thing. So it kind of freaks him out that Jesus knows, I just saw you under the fig tree. Because Nathaniel, based on his answer, was shocked. 49 says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. So he jumps from thinking what good could possibly come out of Nazareth to you are the son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the king of Israel. So that was 45 through 49. We're going to look at the last two on screen. That way you don't have to track them. Here's what ties to our text tonight in Genesis. 
Jesus answers him, you believe because I told you I saw you under that fig tree, but you're going to see greater things than that. Then he adds, very truly I tell you, you will see, just like in Genesis, heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on who? Son of man. Who is that? Jesus. Who's the latter? Jesus. If it's an important enough story for Jesus to reference, that's what makes it well known. Not because Jacob had a rock pillow dream. Jesus talked about, and he said, really, what he's trying to tell them all, they're not really getting it. You know, we have 2020 vision because we know the Bible now. He's trying to tell them, I am the, the bridge. I am the connection. I'm the ladder between holy God and sinful man. I'm the bridge or the connection between heaven and earth. Even the apostles aren't really getting it. But now let's talk about the meaning of Jacob's dream and really the ones, the same meaning. It's the same exact meaning on both cases, what Jesus references and Jacob's dream. If you were here back when we studied Revelation, remember angels just means messenger. It doesn't mean guys with halos and wings and playing harps. It's a messenger from the Lord. So if you think about that concept, these angels ascending and descending, they're messengers from God the Father bringing messages through Jesus to the earth. They're bringing instructions for God's, I would say, miraculous operations down here. So when... Jesus is telling Nathaniel, you will see this yourself. We know he's not going to fully understand, but what he's trying to tell Nathaniel, you're going to see miracles when you follow me. You're going to see God at work on the earth through me. I I'm the, the one that's going to kind of make it happen because I am God, but you're going to get to experience it firsthand. It won't be a vision like Jacob had. You're going to see some of this. And you may not understand it, you may not connect it, but you're going to be part of it, is what he's trying to tell him. And he's trying to tell him, this is what the prophets and the Old Testament guys predicted. You're going to see the results, not just see them, kind of hear about them. You're going to see some of these things in person. So let's think about what the miracles Jesus did when he fed the 5,000, fed the 4,000, raised people from the dead, healed the sick, blind, lame, mute. Nathaniel would have seen some of that. So he really will experience God's miracles that the angels brought maybe instructions to do in person. Let's get back to our text because we kind of stop with the blessing. And if, you, if I go back and read, you know, he, he heard God speaking, he being Jacob. He heard God talk. It, it, I stopped in the first half of 13. We're going to pick it back up in verse 13b or the second half. So just imagine God telling Jacob this in his dream or vision. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you were lying, including your rock pillow, I guess. I keep saying that if you had noticed. It's just kind of a weird concept. I'm sorry. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. In other words, there will be so many it will be like dust. You will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring until we get to the ladder of Jesus. That was my addition, by the way. So God is comforting Jacob. Jacob, remember we just said he's lonely, he's afraid, he's in the middle of nowhere. God is really trying to tell him, I think, two things. 
you're still my son. No matter how bad you messed up, no matter how bad you think your earthly father's upset with you, I still love you. I'm still going to bless you. And not just going to bless you, you're going to get the family blessing, I promise, your grandpa and your dad. And God literally just told him out loud, in his mind anyway at least, the same blessing God spoke to Abraham and to, to Isaac. So now Jacob has moved from, if we go back to our first verse, one, two, three, he heard that blessing from his dad, from Isaac. Now he's hearing it straight from the Lord's mouth in his mind. So it's probably becoming more real finally. It's not just that my earthly father, now my heavenly father is saying this. Let's continue because the blessing isn't quite done yet. He says in verse 15, I am. There's another I am for you. All, I am is all through the Bible, by the way, even more than the places we know it. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, to the promised land. I will not leave you until you've done what I've promised. I, I have not done what I have promised you. In other words, I'll see all these promises to completion. I won't leave until I see it through. Now he's gotten the full covenant straight from the Lord. And I think in my mind anyway, as I was studying this and reading, I think finally, most likely, I hope you would agree, dad's God has become my God. Now it's not your God anymore, it's my God, I think. Because he had an encounter with the Lord, wouldn't you say? I think he did. Which brings up our next point if you're taking notes. This one's key for us. We must have a personal encounter with God. In other words, it can't be our family's religion. It can't be our family's stories passed down. Those are good. Those are helpful. But we have to have a personal encounter, which here at Calvary we like to use personal relationship. We have to meet God ourselves through his word, through prayer, through worship, like we learned about this weekend. In other words, knowing God doesn't get transferred in my DNA. Remember, we've talked about it in here. That's what the Jewish nation believes. I'm going to heaven because Abraham's DNA is in here. DNA is transferable. Following God is not. It's individual. It has to be us having our own individual faith. And, and God tells us in other verses, just have the faith like the size of a mustard seed, which is tiny. I will grow it. I will help you. Just have a little bit, and I'll take what you got and multiply it just like I did with those loaves and fishes in another story. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, I would say vision, by the way, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. But we already learned it was kind of like a certain place, which I said was a random place. So I think Jacob is right, but in my mind he's half right. Because God is there, but he's not just there. Jacob is almost trying to think God is only right here. And he thinks that because he, he, in his defense, you know, this is a long, long time ago. No modern technology, no knowledge of God's word like we have right at our fingertips. He thinks, I just met God right here. This has got to be God's house. This has got to be God's special place. And we'll keep reading in a few verses. He's going to kind of think God must live here. Because he calls it God's house. Well, we know better. 
But I think we can unfortunately make a similar, not near as bad, but a similar mistake. And we, we really can't do that, by the way. In other words, we can't ever get in our own minds, me or you, anybody watching online, that I have to go to blank, whatever place you think God is at. I have to be at a certain place to meet God. I can only meet God at this place. And it's not even here in this room, by the way. It's, you don't meet God at Calvary Chapel. You meet God right here in his word. You meet God through prayer time, worship, and reading, and talking to him. That can be in your bedroom. It can be in your car driving down 95, as long as you don't have a wreck and kill yourself doing it. Be careful talking to God on the interstate. Pay attention. But it's not a building. It's not a place. And we know in Scripture that we are the church. The church is not a building. But we can never get confused and think we have to go to any certain place. In other words, not just a church. What if you were to think, for example, I need to go walk on the beach and have a quiet moment to meet God. That can be done, but don't put God in a box where that's the only place you think you can meet him. He can meet you anywhere because he's everywhere. That's the real idea. And I think David got it down for us pretty well. Let's look at a verse out of Psalms. This is a great verse to remind us. It's not a place. David is, at, he's kind of using this in a different context, though. You know, he, in other words, he, he's, he's trying to say, I can't ever get away from you when I messed up. Where can I go from your spirit? Nowhere, because God is everywhere. Where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. God is everywhere, including right here. He is here with us. But he's also in the parking lot, in your car, at your own house, and on the road you're going to get there. He's everywhere, all times, all present. So I think Jacob is, like I said, half right. God is there, but he's not just there. So don't let us ever think that either. So let's keep reading. Back to verse 17. It says, he was afraid, Jacob, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. Then he goes a little further because of the ladder, I think. This is the gate of heaven. It's heaven's gate. Early the next morning, it says Jacob took the stone he placed under his head, his pillow. Now he's going to take the pillow and make it into like a pillar and make a little rock altar almost. He sets it up as a pillar, if I keep reading, and poured oil on the top of it, anoints it. Then he gives the place a name, verse 19. He called that place Bethel even though the nearby city used to be called Lowe's or Luz. And Bethel, by the way, translates to house of God. So he thinks this is God's house, this random place, certain place in the middle of nowhere. But here's what's kind of interesting. If you read the Old Testament, Bethel is the second most city mentioned, the most second common name in the whole Old Testament. You know what's first? You probably do. It starts with a J. I'll help you out. Jerusalem. Bethel is second to Jerusalem as far as how many times it's mentioned. Because it started great. It started right here. And it, it, it did pretty good for a while. But let me give you some backstory on Bethel. Um, because it's not all good, by the way. It eventually becomes the border city. It's right on the boundary almost of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, eventually, we know in Scripture, the two kingdoms divide because of idolatry, and then Israel becomes like the bad kingdom almost. So Bethel's on the border of the bad kingdom. 
Israel's first king was a guy named Jeroboam. He's very bad, very wicked. And here's why. I'll just tell you one thing he did. This is one of many, but Jeroboam made two golden calves. So the golden calf wasn't just an Exodus story. Jeroboam eventually makes two of them. And guess where he puts one of them? He puts one of them at Bethel. Now the other one, by the way, if any of you guys are going to the Israel trip, you'll go to a city or kind of the ruins of an old city called Tel Dan. Tel just means a hill or ruins. Dan is where the other calf was. So if you could take that trip, or I know some of you in this room have been on that trip, <clears throat> you have seen the other city where the calf was. But Bethel had the other one. Now eventually, a good king comes along from Judah named Josiah. He's going to destroy Bethel because it's a wicked city. It's pagan, it's idolatrous, it has golden calves. If you go to 2 Kings, you'll see that he destroys it. Here's what's really interesting in a way. Guess how many times Bethel's mentioned in the New Testament? Zero. It's the second most mentioned city in the Old Testament. Zero in the New. Zero. Because it gets destroyed and torn down and ruined over these idols. Which is our next point if you're taking notes. Starting well is good, even for us mainly for us, finishing well is critical, critical. Think about all those verses probably popped in your mind when I said that even. What did Paul say? He always equates our Christianity, our, our following Jesus like a walk or a race. He says, I run the race to finish well. I beat my body into submission so it doesn't mess me up along the way. He says, I'll win a prize. I get a crown by finishing we have to make sure we personally, not as a church, not as a group of people, we personally finish well. And how we finish well, not to be perfect, not to be a good person, to always put God first, always filter our thoughts, our ideas through God's word, to obey him as best we can, and to ask for the Holy Spirit to help us do better when we fail. Because we're going to fail. We're just imperfect people. But we finish well by trying and asking God to help us be more like Jesus. Bethel's just a city, but it's a great representation of what starting well looks like. Ended terribly. Idolatry, golden calves, and destroyed for it. Never mentioned again. Back to verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow. This is Jacob being Jacob again, by the way. You'll see what I mean in a second. If, he starts out his vow with if, if God will be with me. Well, if I were to back up, I'm not going to do it. Did not God himself just promise he would be? There's no if. But Jacob is going to kind of bargain or test in a way, God. If God will be with me and watch over me on this journey that I'm taking, in other words, when I go back and try to find my wife, and he's going to add some more conditions, and he, he will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I can return safely. And he's kind of insinuating, if God will be with me, get me to where I'm going, feed me and clothe me on the way, protect me as I go back home so that I return safely to my father's household. Then, and I would add in parentheses, then and only then, will God be my God. He's given God his ultimatum. 
That's classic Jacob, isn't it? But God knew, you know, God is outside of time. When God made those promises, God knew he was going to do this in just a few minutes. It's almost like the story of Peter. We know the story, right? Where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? You're the Messiah. Then a minute or two later, he calls him Satan. This is Jacob doing a Peter almost pre-Peter. He got it right for a second. Now he's given God his list of demands. And if you think about it, let's compare Jacob and Abraham, his grandpa. God tested Abraham, Abram at the time. Remember when he said, take your son Isaac, put him on the altar, and kill him. And I keep doing my hand like a knife because he literally gets the knife and he's ready. And God says, no, 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 I was just testing you. There's a ram over there. Use the ram instead. God tested Abraham. Jacob flips that backwards and tests God. If you'll do this, I'll be your, you can be my God. If you'll do all these conditions. He's lucky fire from heaven didn't incinerate him on this request, is my belief. But, see, God is, it, it just shows you God's character. Look how tolerant and patient and forgiving God is of our bad behavior, Jacob's bad behavior. But I think we can make a pretty strong case based on these demands he just made, that Jacob needs to learn, I would say, definitely two things. Some humility. You don't demand anything out of God. You accept what he offers and gives you. And submission. Humility. I could make it a longer list, but I just picked two. Jacob needs humility. Jacob needs submission. I would say desperately. Well, don't miss next week, because he is going to go to Laban's house And he'll kind of pay some prices, I think, for this behavior. And I'll give you a little hint because you already know the story. Think about the story of Leah and Rachel when the deceiver gets deceived. God sees, remember I said a while ago, God saw when he was desperately lonely, afraid, and, and had full of regrets. God saw that. But I think God equally sees his illegal demand. God says, okay, I hear you. I hear your if, and I'm going to raise you a Rachel and Leah. You know, (laughs) that's what's going to happen. So don't miss next week. But let's kind of look at his request. Um, Because in a way, they're in our scripture, I believe, because for Jacob, they're a request, if you'll do this. For us, think of them more as a promise. These are our, you and I, promises Because what he's asking for, if you'll be with me, what he's really asking for is God's presence. God promised us he is always present. So for us, that request of God's presence is our promise. Then he also, remember, asks, watch over me. That's just God's protection. God promises in verse after verse he will fight. He'll fight our battles in spiritual warfare like we prayed about. He is our protector. Then he asked for some provision, you know, feed me, clothe me on my way. God says over and over, promised us, I will provide for you. Just put your faith in me, I will provide for you. Then last but not least, remember, he says, just get me back to my dad's house safe. He wants to live in peace. What does God promise us over and over and over? His peace. His peace. So his sort of, as I call them, illegal demands are really our New Testament promises for us. Presence, protection, provision, peace.
peace. Jacob's going to come back with what his, uh, I call it almost his counteroffer. So he says, if God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. Let's see what Jacob says he'll do if God will do all that. I will worship you. The Lord will be my God. Think about this weekend sermon. I will worship you. We should be so thankful to the Lord, we just want to worship him endlessly. It's kind of a, a bad way he got there, but it is, it is a good promise. We should have the same promise. God, you're so good to me, I want to worship you. And I want to worship you nonstop. Then he also said, he kind of built that weird rock pillow thing. I will have a place of worship. We don't have a rock pillow for you tonight, sorry. I hope you're not disappointed. But we do have a place you can worship the Lord. But you can do it anywhere, remember, don't forget that. But aren't you glad we have lights and air conditioning and great teaching on the weekend, week in, week out? We have a place, and it needs to be a regular place, by the way. We'll talk more about that in a second. Then lastly, he ends with his tithe. I'll read that verse in a second. He says, I will give you a tenth. Because, let me read verse 22. I never read that one yet. It said, this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me, I'll give you a tenth. We'll talk about that again in a second, even more. So those were his promises. I kind of put them up as highlights on the screen, but Jacob said in that verse 22, this stone I set up, I will worship you, this will be your house, and I will give you a tenth of everything. He recognized that it was God, that it was God's presence. Those same verses should remind us to recognize God. But also ought to remind us, in, in some ways, how we recognize God's presence. There's quite a few ways, but um, I picked three with our next main point, our last point. If you're taking notes, we access God's, he's, he's always there, but we kind of access a closer presence, if you will, through our prayers, our worship, and don't miss it, what Jacob said, our giving. If you read scripture, giving is an act of worship. We think worship sometimes is singing, which it is. But so is prayer, so is giving. We don't always see giving as worship, but God's word says it is. But here's something else to think about. Jacob built this rock pillow pillar thing so he could remember where all this happened. And we know in other verses, Jacob passed by there quite often as he traveled around the promised land. Every time he passed that little pillar thing, he would remember, that's where I met God. That's where I met God. We shouldn't get confused about the place, but it is important for us, I believe, to remember what God has done. Remember what God has done in your life. As I say that, think about something God has done for you personally. Not for me, not for your neighbor, for you. Think about something God has done, and here's why. Now, we don't want to dwell on that because that already happened, but it's still important. You want to remember that because it helps you believe, have faith of what God will do, will do. We remember what he did to help our faith about what he's going to do for the future. Jacob needed a visual reminder we have God's voice to remind us, his written word that says, follow me, obey me, worship me, serve me, 
and I will do great things in your life. I'm not done yet, is a way to think about that. But let me go back to that 22, because I want to focus on that just for a second. We're almost done, because Jacob ended, we're kind of done with the chapter on that verse, by the way. He said, and all that you give me, in other words, all those blessings that he got earlier straight from God after his dad already told him, I will give you a tenth. I will tithe, is what he's really saying. So don't miss the fact he's now kind of changed his heart a little bit. He's willing to worship God, remember God, obey God, and give back to God. Here's the thing to remember about our worship. You know, think of tithing as your worship. We worship God by obeying him primarily. We have to obey his commands. But as we obey him, we give. We give back. He gave his life for us. It's a debt we could never repay. The way we can scratch the surface of repayment is by obeying him. We obey him by worship and also our giving. And worship, by the way, and our giving, because giving is worship, it has to be a regular practice. It's not a thing we do when we feel like we can. I check my account balance and decide, okay, things look good this month, this week. I think I can give to God now. It's got to be a regular practice. You're giving, let's tie it more, because we think of worship sometimes as singing. What if you came to church and only sang, maybe if you're here every week, what if you sang once a month? The other times you just stood here silently and you just sort of were like a robot almost. That's kind of what we're doing if we're not giving to the Lord on a regular basis. We're not really honoring what he required is to give regularly. Not just with our, our service. Service is good, but it can never replace our, our tithe, our giving. It's got to be regular. It's got to be done out of obedience, not because I'm telling you to tonight. It's because you want to. Because God wants us to, not because he mandates us to. Because God also tells us in other verses, I only want cheerful givers. If you're doing it for the wrong reason, just keep it. I don't need it. Because here's the bottom line. It's all God's money. It's all God's. All he's asking for 10% back, it's his anyway. It's his. But it ties with that other concept. Remember a while ago I said, we want God's provision. Here's what the real giving promise entails. And this is sometimes, I think we miss this. If we will commit to obey and give to the Lord, including our, our money, our tithe, he will make the math work. When I don't see how the math could possibly add up, he will make it work in ways I can never imagine. And by the way, if you're a newer believer, that doesn't mean a check will come in the mail to replace what you put in the plate or the box. But what it can mean, by the way, here's something we don't understand, I think, sometime. If we commit to give... God commits to provide for us. His provision will include that 10% that he asked for us to give back. He can do that by making your car last longer, your roof last longer, your appliances last longer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He may not bring you a check. He might. That has happened too, by the way. People have given tithes and they'll get some kind of mysterious income tax refund for that exact amount. You hear about those stories. That's God, by the way. 
But he can make your stuff that you think is your stuff, it's his stuff. He can make his stuff last longer for you. Where you don't have to buy a new roof, where you don't need a new car, your tires don't go flat. If we will take a step of faith and give, he will give it back in ways we can't imagine. Because he tells us, remember that's the only verse in Malachi, test me. You test me and I'll give it back to you. Just try. Try me and I'll test me. He didn't tell Jacob to test him, by the way, but Jacob did it anyway. So if you're struggling with that, I would say just pray about it. Take a leap of faith. Trust that God's provision includes you giving his portion back, and he will bless your socks off. Your socks might not wear out, for example. You won't need any for a while. So we're going to close in prayer, but I think we're going to tie it back to Jacob's request. Because for us, it'll be on the screen, and I'll pray it out loud in a second. Think about this prayer as a prayer on a regular basis. This was Jacob's request. It's a great request for us, even though I said it's our promise. It's also a great thing for us to sort of tell God, God, I need you. I need your presence in my life. I need it desperately. I want it. And also, I trust you, Lord. I trust you to protect me through life's trials and struggles and ups and downs. And we just talked about our giving. I believe, I trust that you'll provide for me and allow me to give back to you like I'm supposed to. And then last but not least, God, I want your peace. Like Jacob, I want your peace. I trust you to see me through this journey we call life. And it's got me upset. It's got me worried. It's got me struggling. I want your peace that surpasses my human understanding. We need it, but God wants sometime for us to ask for it. So let's just pray and ask for those things right now. Lord, we love you, and we know that we need your presence, Lord, but we just ask for your presence. Fill our life with your presence. Fill us up to overflowing with you, Lord. So there's so much of you in us, it spills out, and we can share it with others. Lord, we also just, we, we commit to trusting your protection. We trust that no matter how bad life looks, what kind of medical problems, financial problems, emotional, spiritual problems we have, we trust, Lord, that you will fight our battles, you will defeat the enemy's spiritual warfare, and you will protect us because you promised that in your word. And we also believe in your provision, Lord. We believe that you will provide for us miraculously like you promised, that if we would take that step of faith, you would bring a storehouse of heaven to, to us if we would just take that leap and give back to you. So we trust you, Lord. We trust you with your stuff because it's not ours anyway. It's yours, Lord. So we trust you and we commit to managing your stuff well like you instruct us. And Lord, finally, we close with asking for your peace. Give us your peace when things are going bad. Things that don't make sense happen. Lord, Just we want your peace to get through it. So Lord, give us the peace that Jacob asked for. Even though he asked the wrong way, we want your peace to do life right because, Lord, we want to make you look good. Let our peace be a model of what to act like, talk like, be like. When the world maybe sees us, they will see a glimpse of you. But we need your peace to do that, Lord. So give us all these things we ask for and more. Give us any gift, anything you desire us to have, Lord. Show up like you did for Jacob in that wilderness. Show up when we need you desperately most, Lord, even when we forget to ask. We love you. We praise you. We also, Lord, remember what you have done. 
we also believe what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said? Amen. Amen. See you this weekend about spiritual warfare.